0: Uh, I did have a good um, encouraging word this morning on the way to church, though, so I'm sure it will help me. I heard a Lowe's ad on the radio, and Lowe's is new tagline, has anybody heard it? Never stop improving. So when I heard that, I was like, yes, there's there's always a chance for me. <laughs> but, then I, but then I was like, well, you know, never stop improving is kind of, it, it seems like that's not the pitch Lowe's want, wants to make, because whenever you enter into a home improvement project, you're like, all right, if I get these granite countertops, right, my life will be perfect, right? So it's worth any expense I have to do to get it. Uh, and so the, the dream of home improvement is that once you improve, you're done and you you know, your life is perfect. And of course, you realize ultimately that it's futile and that you never get there. But if your tagline is never stop improving, it kind of brings the futility to the forefront. So your automatic reaction is like, well, why should I even do anything if it's never going to stop? Anyway, me. <laughs> All right, so we're this is the last class, I think, on the parables from the summer. Uh, so it's up to me, I think, to, to really bring it all home here at the end. I hope, hope I'll be able to do so. The parable for today is the great banquet. And um, so with that in mind, I guess we'll start with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Give us grateful hearts, O Father, for all thy mercies, and make us mindful of the needs of others. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 All right, so the conclusion to the unmerciful servant. I think we, um, just to set up the, the parable real quick. So we, the servant owes ten thousand talents, which um, I was told was about two hundred thousand years' worth of wages to his master. Uh, in Ron's class last week, he had a different calculation for how much, how many w- years of wages I was, was, talent? was like a talent? A, a year wages. So, so under your calculation, it'd only be ten thousand years of wages, but it's a pretty substantial sum, whatever oh. it is. Negative. You're right. Exactly. Exactly. What's it? I mean, give or take 190,000 years. No big deal. <laughs> um, so the servant goes to the master and says, "Master, please forgive me." And the master says, or the, he says, "I'm sorry." The servant goes to the master because this is an important point. The servant goes to the master and says, "Master, I'll work it off. I'll get, I'll get it. I'm going I'm to work it off. I'm going to get your money back to you. So whatever it is, 200,000 years, 10,000 years." The guy's got a lot of years of work ahead of him to get this done, and the master, I guess, it, I mean, it doesn't really say what his 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 internal reaction to this was, but he says to the servant, "I forgive you entire, you know, I forgive your entire debt. Go and, uh, you know, you're you're forgiven." I imagine that the master probably chuckled to himself before doing so at the idea of this guy working off thousands of years of wages. But in any event, that servant then goes to his fellow servant who owes him 100 uh, denarii. Or is it denarii? 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 Good. Okay. Which is the equivalent of 100 days' wages. Maybe Ron has a different calculation. It could be like 20 days' wages. I don't know. But uh, the fellow servant owes him 100 denarii, and the, the servant who'd just been forgiven. 10,000 talents, has him thrown in prison. So when the master hears about this, he goes to the servant who formerly owed him 10,000 talents and turns him over to the torturers. So at the end of the parable, we had some, some open questions, and I think we were working through the entirety of that chapter of Matthew, which is either 16 or 18. I didn't write it down. Um, but the, the, before the parable, there's a, there's the discussion, um, which I'm sure is probably among all of your favorite verses where he talks about, you know, if your eye betray if your hand betrays, you cut it off. If your eye, if you don't like your eye, gouge it out. Um, everyone always likes that. So it's kind of, so you're like, well, how do you make sense of that idea of, you know, you're gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand. And, you know, one page later, we're having this parable of the, of the, um, of the unmerciful servant where uh, the master is forgiving his servant an unpayable debt. How do you make sense of that kind of contrast of this, you know, you need to be hard on yourself and gouge out your eye versus you, the master will forgive you. And uh, the other question was, of course, that, that Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like uh why is he talking about that's what the kingdom of heaven is like rather than, than this is what God's grace is like or you know in the Robert capon has the kingdom grace and judgment um, in the parable the grace is clear with the unmerciful servant the judgment is clear with the um, with the servant being thrown in prison after he fails to forgive but where's the the kingdom aspect of it and I I think the answer, at least the answer according to Capon, and he, unlike me, has some actual theological training, uh, is that the parable is really about death. That the parable is really about death. And that God works not by fortifying the strong, not by um, getting the people you know, who have just a little bit of debt and can get out of debt, you know, making them better people, making them save a little more or pay a little more to their debts and, you know, really giving them the encourage, encouragement that they need to, to take that next step to, you know, always be improving, as the Lowe's commercial said. He doesn't do that. He doesn't fortify the strong. He resurrects the dead. Um, and I think that's a common theme, at least through, through the parables that, that we've been working through, that I've been working through, um, you know, the prodigal son uh, a perfect example of someone who died and then is resurrected at the end. The father dies to the, to the um, uh, basically dies to his sons, uh, gives away all his money, his son wastes it, and then he, he further dies to resurrect, his, when his son comes home, to resurrect and throw the party for his son. Some other examples we've talked, to, um, uh, talked about, Jonah uh, being swallowed by the whale, dead, then comes back alive. Uh, even Abraham was one that sort of serendipitously came up uh, in church the last time we talked. You know, a guy who's who was basically unable to have children, and God takes that and builds his, his earthly uh, kingdom on Abraham. So this idea of, of, of maiming yourself, of gouging out your eye, is really about dying to the part of yourself that is unfixable. The, the only way to, to fix the foot that causes you to stumble is to cut it off. Uh, the only way to fix the eye that's giving you trouble is to die to it. And then once you're dead, the way that God works, as Jesus describes him as the parable, in the parables, is by resurrecting the dead parts of you. And this is um, uh, uh, also an idea that I think comes through a lot in uh and Alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous. Are you, any of you members of Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> <laughs> um, John Zoll uh, has written a book with someone else who I can't remember about the Alcoholics Anonymous and the idea of grace working through it. And the first two steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are, have this death and resurrection idea. The, the first one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. So you admit that you you have to die to your alcoholism. You have you you're unable to overcome it, um, and you can't just say, well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna work through this myself. I'm gonna stop drinking or whatever. You have, actually just have to surrender to it and say, look, I can't I can't do it. My life is I'm I'm just unable to fix it. And then the second step is able to come through, which is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And so it's really the death comes first, and then the power greater than yourself uh, is able to to restore you from your dead place. So the unmerciful servant is really uh, about death. The master dies to, to... to this gigantic death that his servant owes him. He doesn't say, well, you know, we had an earlier um, uh, parable, which I'll talk again about in a second, which was the unjust steward, where the unjust steward kind of slashes people's debts so they can then pay him back. But the master and the unmerciful servant says, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm dead to it. The whole idea of you paying it back or you paying interest or you paying a little bit, that no longer goes. You can't improve yourself out of this debt. Um, it's 200,000 years, you can't work it out, I'm going to die to it. I'm going to give up the entire idea of accounting and, and pinching pennies and keeping track of, of who owes who what. It's, that's over. Um, and you know, you're forgiven. And, and then from that point, what you hope happens is that, is, that, is that the death inspires the unmerciful servant to then go out and do good things for his fellow man. Uh, but instead, what the servant does is say, okay, well, the master gave up on the idea of accounting, but I'm not going to. I'm going to keep on accounting. So uh, he goes out to his fellow servant, kind of shakes him down. I need the money now. Um, and, uh, and then the master comes down on him. So the, so the idea is that, the, is that there's this death uh, and that the, the basically by, by dying to the death, the master hopes that everyone will kind of join the party. Will give up the idea of accounting. Will um, you know and uh, be able to to interact or treat their fellow servants or fellow human beings as someone who has been the recipient of a great forgiveness, uh, someone who's been given a lot. And when the when the servant refuses to join the party, uh, the master sends him off to be tortured instead. Now I mentioned the unjust steward. Uh, and this, with this kind of um, interpretation of the unmerciful servant in mind, you can kind of see how the unjust steward works. So the, the, the master says, steward, you're fired. The steward goes out and, and starts working with people who actually owe debts to the master and slashing his debts because he's trying to build up friendships. And the master reacts to that not by uh, saying, you know, no, you owed me this money. You. you I'm holding you to account for collecting all these all these pennies from people who owe me but by joining actually joining the party in that parable the master says you know well done uh, good job and and the master is sort of converted by the stewards uh you know actions towards his fellow servants of slashing their debts um it's a little different obviously because he doesn't forgive them entirely but um that's you sort of you see this idea of the of the conversion in there so I wanted to, to kind of close out that unmerciful servant uh, with what Capon actually says about it because I think it's very powerful. And I don't think that um, it's it's one of those things that it's hard to believe unless you have someone with authority actually saying it. And so let me read what Capon has to say about this idea of forgiveness and the idea of, uh, of heaven and hell. Capon says... <clears throat> In heaven there are only forgiven sinners. There are no good guys, no upright successful types who by dint of their own integrity have been accepted into the great country club in the sky. There are only failures, only those who have accepted their deaths and their sins and who have been raised up by the king who himself died that they might live. But in hell too there are only forgiven sinners. Jesus on the cross does not sort out certain exceptionally recalcitrant parties and cut them off from the pardon of his death. He forgives the badness of even the worst of us willy-nilly, and he never takes back that forgiveness, not even at the bottom of the bottomless pit. The sole difference, therefore, between hell and heaven is that in heaven the forgiveness is accepted and passed along, while in hell it is rejected and blocked. In heaven, the death of the king is welcomed and becomes the doorway to new life and the resurrection. In hell, the old life of the bookkeeping world is insisted on and becomes forever the pointless torture it always was. So that's Capon's very good, very eloquent words about that. All right. So the great banquet. It's in Luke 14, which um, immediately precedes Luke 15, which is the chapter that, that contains the story of the lost sheep and the prodigal son, which um, has come up before. So in it, it, Luke 14 begins the beginning of this dinner that, that Jesus is having in Luke with the Pharisees. Uh, and, it, and he tells not only the story of the great banquet, but also the story of the of the prodigal son and in between the lost coin and the lost sheep. And you see in, in this one, I think it, with the setup of the parable, you see that Jesus's idea is one that that, um, that is, I think, repeated often throughout these parables, which is he afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. And you see that he has a very intentional purpose for that. So, so let's um, start by looking at Luke 14. And what I'll do, I'll I'll read the. Uh, The whole chapter, because I think it's good to have context before we focus on the parable itself. Everybody see that? Hmm? It's kind of hard to see, is not it? You yeah. All right, I don't know if you can see it or not, but I'll, I'll read it. <clears throat> One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And I think that was actually an issue that came up in another passage from Luke today in in church. Uh, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked him, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. And I think today it was, you know, if you are if you're have to, after your um, ox is fed or your animals are fed, you have to take them to get water. Same idea. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And then, continuing on the banquet theme, we go into the parable of the great banquet. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get the taste of my banquet. And it goes on from there, but we'll stop for now. So obviously, um, it's another food theme, and this actually just the end of uh, Luke 14 actually ends with the uh, uh, the puzzling uh, if salt loses its saltiness. Um, it's no longer tasty idea, um, but it, so we have. The, but we have this food theme with the, with the great banquet, and um, it starts with this with him basically saying, uh, first, you know, take a take a humble place when you go when someone invites you to the banquet, so you're not humiliated, and then he talks about inviting the poor and the oppressed and the blind and the lame to the banquet. Uh, so you can imagine. Uh, how great everyone felt about Jesus as a dinner guest at this party, right? I mean, it's bad enough when you're like, when you get invited to a dinner party and you say, "Oh, where's, you know, did you not invite so and so, or, yeah. you know, whatever?" And, and um, or, "Oh, thanks for inviting me. I, I know you had a dinner party a few months ago that you didn't invite me to, so I'm glad I got to finally come." Um, but so, but Jesus goes a step further. He's not like, "Hey, invite this other cool person to the dinner party." He's like. Oh well, don't invite all these all these other Pharisees who are doing well. You should invite the poor and the blind and the lame. Um, and so I'm sure that you know you you have the Pharisees who are not terrible people, right? I mean they're they're like they're like you and me, right? They're they're you know fine, upstanding members of their community, and I'm sure you know probably give their 10% to the poor as they're instructed by the law to do. And what Jesus is saying is, you know, you know, and I'm sure they're all there at the dinner, um, and they have appropriate blessings before the dinner goes down. And, and Jesus is saying to them, you know, well, guys, that's not enough, right? I mean, he's, he's basically saying, uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me to your dinner, but you, you should not be inviting all these other upstanding people here. You should be inviting the people that are below us that you don't even want to touch in the streets to your dinner. Uh, which obviously didn't go over well. Um, so then you have uh, the, the phrase, which is ultimately the catalyst for the, for the parable, which is one of those at the table said to Jesus, and you can imagine kind of the silence after Jesus says, you should only invite the poor. Everyone's probably staring at their plates, right? And, um, you know, maybe finishing off their glass of wine and uh, not looking at anybody else and then somebody says well blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of god right so uh okay yeah that's cool um but you know we're all believers we all believe in in heaven so blessed are those who are who feast at the kingdom of god and um this um, you know he's kind of he's kind of saying well let's not worry about earthly things let's wor- worry about what's going to happen to these people in heaven right I mean the poor will get their reward in heaven and um, you know the guy's almost like I'm sure you know you don't say something like this unless you're cl- including yourself and in among among those people that are going to be enjoying this feast in heaven right he's like well we'll all eat together uh, in the kingdom of God not not here at this nice banquet. We don't want to invite people with bad table manners. We'll all get together in heaven when they have their heavenly garments on and maybe smell a little nicer, and uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll eat then. Um, and that, this part kind of reminded me of, of, of my own story, which um, a few years ago, we always have a big Thanksgiving feast at, at my house. So... Um, I went to the, I, we'd forgotten something that Thanksgiving morning that we needed for, the, for our, our meal. So I went to Walmart, which is actually open on, on Thanksgiving Day, and got what we needed and was coming out, and there was, a, there was actually a homeless guy walking around the parking lot. And he asked me for money, and I, of course, said, no, I'm sorry, I don't have anything. Um, and I got in the car, and I was like, what if I got this homeless guy... In the car and brought him home for dinner, thinking of the of Capon, which I was actually reading at the time. I was like, what if I actually brought him home to dinner? I mean, that would really be the right thing to do, right? That would really be. I mean, that would that would really show the world what a good person I am. <laughs> and uh, and then I was like, well, how would everyone react to that if if you have this big family gathering, um, you have certain social uh, uh, expectations. Everyone's looking to have a good time. If you if you kind of dumped this homeless person into the middle of the dinner. Um, how would everyone react to that so as I was driving away I was like oh, you know so I immediately of course drove away I didn't d- d- do it um, uh, so it was funny uh, a couple years ago and I heard Louis CK who's made an appearance in this class a couple of times do a similar bit uh, which I want to show you because he can tell his stories in, in a way that are much funnier than mine but the same idea so here's Louis CK uh, who is talking about sitting in first class on the airplanes? And he, uh, you know, he, he talks about how in first class you get to sit down first, and then while everyone else is getting on the plane, you get to drink champagne and watch them all go by. And he mentions that uh, service people, I mean people in the military, fly on commercial flights when they go to wars. Right? They don't, you know, they don't jump out of airplanes. They fly, you know, they fly into Baghdad and um, and go to go to war that way. And so it, it, I wanted to show you the whole bit, but it had uh, above my allotted amount of curse words. So there's, here's an edited version of it. That's um, a clip that, where he talks about the, uh, the, um, this idea. And every time I see a soldier on a plane, I always
1: think, you know what, I should give him my seat. It's, it's, it would be the right thing to do, it would be easy to do, and it would mean a lot to him. I could give him, I could go up and son, pay hey a home,
2: son. Hey, son, go ahead and take my Because <laughs> I'm the first class, why? For being a professional. <laughs> I'm the first class because I talk about big, big. <laughs> that's what got me. Sorry.
0: This guy is giving his life for the country, he thinks, and so he, he has to but that's good enough, that's good enough. The fact that he it, I'm serious. they told by everybody in his life system that that's a great thing to do and he's doing it and it's scary but he's doing it and he's sitting in this <laughs> seat and I should train with him. I never have, let me make that clear. I've never done it once. I've had so many opportunities. I never even really seriously get
1: close. <laughs> and here's the worst part. I still just enjoy the fantasy for myself to enjoy. I was actually proud of myself <laughs> <laughs> for having fun of it. And I was proud.
2: Oh, I am such a sweet man. This
0: So,
1: uh, your 2012 Person of the Year award. All right, <laughs> there
0: we go. All right. So this is so this is the so that's kind of the the uh, the catalyst there is, is Jesus kind of um, drops this bomb in the middle of dinner, and then the guy's like, "Hey, well, let's let's you know." Well, let's not think too hard about that. Let's not ruin dinner. Um, why, you know, why can't we ever have a nice Thanksgiving, right? I mean, blessed are is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, of course, being the uh, the wonderful polite dinner guest that he is, doesn't let it go, right? This is this is this is the worst thing you can do at a dinner party. Uh, say something about politics and makes everyone uncomfortable, or uh, or religion, or whatever, and. Um, and someone tries to move it on, and the guy's like, no, I'm not finished yet, I, you know, I've got something to say. So Jesus tells the story of the great banquet at that point. Um, so the story of the, ba- the banquet. The banquet is prepared. The, uh, the, it doesn't say what, what the status of the man who prepared the banquet is, is uh, although he invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything's ready. So he'd obviously sent out um, a lot of invitations. Maybe he didn't get a lot of RSVPs to his invitations. Not clear. Um, But at at least at the time the banquet is ready, he he tells the servants to go get those who have been invited, which is, I think, any time I throw a party, I know that... um, I'm always nervous, right, five minutes before the party starts that no one's going to come. So this is, this is the position of the master. You know, you're sort of looking out the window like, uh, maybe everyone decided to go do something else, or even worse, go do something else without me. right? But, so uh, he sends the servants out to go gather the people, and then they all make excuses. And the excuses are actually pretty decent excuses, I think, especially for the time uh you know you're talking about a very uh agrarian culture uh a culture that's concerned about family uh, and the first one says i bought a field i have to go see it second one i got you know five yoke of oxen i don't know how many oxen that is is that just five oxen is, is a yoke more than one? Ten? okay oh because you have two yeah right, good good tamar's got much more farming experience than i do <laughs> Um, so I got to go. I got to go tend to my oxen, and then the other one, you know, I just got married, so I can't come. Right? I got to go. I got to go tend to the wife. So you know, none of them are doing are doing bad things, um, but uh, they're all you know legitimate excuses. And so the servant comes back and tells the master, um, you know, all these people are off doing other things, and so the master gets angry. And tells the servants to go out quickly and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So the people who said that Jesus, or that, that Jesus said that, that should be invited to the banquet anyway. And it's funny because it's, in, in this one, this part of it, it's it's a little less clear than in the subsequent verse. But he's, he says to go out and bring in the poor. right? He doesn't say go out and invite them to come to my house. He's, he's kind of like round them up and, uh, and bring them in. And so the servant does that. There's still room at the banquet, so the master says, "Okay, now go out and to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come Amen. in." So it's even wor- even even a bigger uh, issue of force here for the for the remaining people, so that you can fill up the house. So uh, the master's concern here is not you know getting the right sort of people or getting the good people or even the bad people. Uh, he just wants to get people who are willing to be forced to come fill up his house for the banquet. Um, and then he ends by saying, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So even at the end, there's this contrast between those who are invited and those who are, who are forced to come. And he says, you know, the people that I ask to come won't get to eat at the, at the banquet table, but the people that are forced to come do. Interesting idea. Um, so, uh, we get a couple things from here. Uh, one, you know obviously God is gathering it's really the the worthless people uh, who are the people that God is able to force to come to his house. And so it's this idea that we talked about earlier. It's only really the dead who are capable of even being forced into the to the master's house. It's almost as if uh, uh, the servant is stacking up dead bodies in the banquet hall, right? I mean these are these are people that's just round them up. And bring him in, um, which is what what the what the servant does, he doesn't wait for him to accept the invitation, and even the ones who invited aren't allowed to come to the banquet. So if you're waiting for an invitation to the banquet, then you don't get to come. So uh, before we get to which is actually a fairly long scene, um, but I want to I want to set it up uh, because it's really um, to me one of the one of the more powerful scenes in cinema history. But um, but the what's it's it's all of these parables. And uh, this is certainly an example, are are funny in the sense that they don't make any sense. That they're very ironic, right? I mean, you don't. The end of the parable is not what you expect to happen. You expect God to um, reach out to the to the good people. You expect them to round up the people who are doing their best, who are improving themselves, and bringing them into the banquet. But what Jesus is constantly doing. Is upsetting the the common notion of what it means to be uh, a heavenly person, what it means to be uh, someone who's going to participate in the kingdom of God, and to bring it to bring home this idea of it's really um, it's really only the dead who are ultimately going to get into heaven, which we all know to be true, right? No one goes to heaven alive. No one gets out of life alive. Uh, and it's really the, the dead ultimately that that get the benefit of being at the banquet. So, I'm going to read it. Yeah?
2: There's also a about how you wrapped up the unmerciful servant, mm-hmm. AA. Kabon's description book of hell uh, is full of forgiven sinners as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. The first few steps of AA: powerlessness and unmanageability, i.e., death, I am dead, dead, trespasses and sins in the passive sense um, came to believe that a, a God outside of ourselves could restore me to salvation mm-hmm. restore me to sanity mm-hmm. to um, just that, that passivity I never thought of it here in the great language where those that are invited won't eat because that's their activity they would say yes There'd be a people who are alive saying yeah I can do this mm-hmm. I'm in mm-hmm. they say no you can't if you're invited you won't eat But if you're dead, i.e., compelled, you know, cross doing itself to us, it's a very obnoxious activity of God. Mm He kills us Mm -hmm. before he invites us or resurrects Mm -hmm. us. Right. Only then we. It's just so. It's obnoxious. It's the word, it's audacious. Sure. And there's a title of the class The Audacity of God to Do That. Sure. To kill us before he says, Now come eat in my paper.
0: Right. And, and I think it's it, just all
2: in here and it's just
0: it, it never makes me comfortable. Right. <laughs> well and and that's and it and it's 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 particularly obnoxious at this particular dinner among the people who are kind of doing yeah. all the right things, right? They're good guys. And and those people, even maybe the Pharisees are a little bit better than we are, but everyone has this sense of it's the it's this improving yourself idea. and It's you know, I I need to earn yeah. My reward. Game, and
1: I'm so proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: yeah, Exactly. 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 <laughs> <in thinking> right, <laughs> right. But yeah, but he basically, you know, he he kinda he kind of takes the the accounting ledger and kicks over the table and burns it up. <laughs> All right. And yeah, um
2: Frank's sermon too, the power of time to never gets old.
0: All right, well, let me read this, this quote from, from Capon, which I hope will bring it home, and then we'll watch, um, watch this, this, a scene from The Godfather. And, he, and Capon kind of builds off the, the idea of saltiness, which, is, which we didn't actually get to, but it's at the, at the end of, of Luke 14. And so this is what Capon says. The saltiness of Jesus' disciples, the taste, zip, and zing that the church at its best can give to the world, derives precisely from our recognition that the good news is one huge inside joke. It's exactly like the Great Banquet, in fact. All you have to be is a certified loser, and God will send a servant, Jesus, to positively drag you into his house. The only sad thing is that so often the church looks as if it never heard the joke. Either it's afraid to talk about losing and blathers on instead about salvation through moral success, intellectual competence, and spiritual triumph, or if it does finally get around to telling people that death, resurrection is the name of the game, it puts on a long face and acts as if the whole deal is a crying shame. But the gospel is not a tragedy. It's it's precisely a hilariously salty story, so flavorful in its positively bad taste, in which school teachers, crane operators, models, bag ladies, arbitrageurs, tennis pros, drug addicts, bankers, lawyers, lechers, and pimps, all get away with murder just by dropping dead. Just by life. Dropping dead. So, this idea of of, of getting away with murder um, and the the whole uh, idea of, of death resurrection, I think, really comes forward uh, in this scene from The Godfather, which I'm about to play with you. And I, I, I don't know has everybody seen The Godfather? I know I know hasn't, which just makes me sad, but. Um, All right, so so *The Godfather* is the story of Michael Corleone. Um, He's the son of Don Corleone, who is the the big crime boss in New York for a long time. And it actually, the the movie begins with a wedding feast, which is in Matthew. There's another version of the great banquet, kind of, uh, which is set at a a wedding feast. But so it begins with a wedding feast, and I won't go through the whole story. But ultimately. Don Corleone tries to hand over the, the family to his son, Sonny. Sonny, uh, but prior to that, Don Corleone has refused to help out some of the other families. So Sonny gets assassinated. Don Corleone has hopes that his son, Michael, will ultimately be a legitimate person. Uh, but, so he sends Michael, my, well, Michael volunteers to murder somebody and um, Michael then gets sent off out of the country and to try to get hidden away. And then a car he falls in love with a woman and a car bomb explodes. Hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody and kills his his fiance. And after that and the bomb is intended for Michael. And so after that, Don Corleone has a meeting with all the five families in New York and says, you know, look, I'm not gonna seek revenge for for Sonny's for Sonny's murder anymore. He's kinda gives up. He he's like the unmerciful servant, he kinda forgives the debt. And so then everyone says, "Okay, great." They have you know big hugs, uh, and then Don Corleone dies, and at and Michael becomes the head of the of the crime family. And this is a scene that takes place after Michael has become a head of the of the crime family, um, of the Corleone family at the baptism of his niece. I think it's his niece or his nephew. I can't remember, but it's his sister's Connie's son. Uh, but the but the contrast of the of the baptism, with the uh, uh, with the with the settling of the accounts of the Corleone family, it's very and it's it's a little bit late. So if, it's a five minute scene. So feel free to leave in the middle of it if you want. Is there any violence? Yeah, lots of violence. So if you if you don't like fake 70s blood, then. <coughs> That's Michael Corleone. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah <laughs> so this is the this this is the truly shocking story of the gospel, right Even if we're murderers, no matter how horrible we are as people, the baptism of God uh, is able to resurrect us. And with that, we'll see you all again. I hope. I I didn't prepare anything, so. Um. Dear Father, thank you for your generous and great mercy on us. Those of us who are unable to invite the poor and oppressed to our own banquets, thank you for forcing us, the poor and lame in spirit, to come to yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.